So, Jay, the New Mutants movie. Miles, that was... definitely a movie. I mean, I kind of liked it, but yeah, it, it does have some problems. It has? Dude, it's predicated on a problem. Well, yeah, but that's the nature of narrative conflict. Oh, no, 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 man. I'm not talking about the story structure. I'm talking about the bear story. The Cheyenne one, about the two bears inside each of us, with one made of positive emotions and one negative? It was wolves originally, right? Yeah, but that's not the issue. It's not actually a Cheyenne story. It originally came from... Oh, another tribe? Billy Graham. What?! I'm Jay Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 316 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And welcome to a different episode than the one we announced on our last Next Time. We thought we were just going to talk about some more X-Men comics, but then the New Mutants movie finally, against all odds, actually came out, and in a way that didn't require us to go inside a movie theater. So, we watched it, um, possibly despite our better judgment, and we are going to talk about that this episode. We should qualify before we do. This will contain spoilers for the movie and also for the comics it's based on, but we've already discussed those at exhaustive length on the podcast, and we'll link back to those episodes in case you need a palate cleanser in the visual companion to this episode. So the New Mutants is the final Fox X-Men movie. Let's go down the roster. So we had three X-Men movies set in the original Fox X-Men movie continuity, and then four more set in the alternate timeline past of that continuity. God, I mean, I thought it was confusing talking about X-Men comics. One of the things I really love about the Fox X-Men franchise is that it has remained true to the spirit of the comics in terms of becoming a sprawling clusterfuck. It truly, truly has. Uh, let's see, so then we had three Wolverine movies, the last of which was set way in the future. We had two Deadpool movies, which don't count, as we've established. And we had the Generation X TV movie, which, boy howdy, that was a thing. Well, the Deadpool movies count within the Fox Cinematic Universe. They don't count in terms of the comics universe. I mean, they do directly contradict the other X-Men movies in terms of plot, because, you know, Deadpool. Right, but yeah, they're Deadpool movies, and the extent to which they do or don't count is arguable, but even if they do count, they count exclusively within the sphere of the cinematic universes. Okay, well, fine. But regardless, this is the last one, because now Disney owns the X-Men, they're almost assuredly going to integrate them into the Marvel Cinematic Universe at some point, so this is the last we get to see of that world, as much as this movie is largely divorced from other stuff in that world, with one major exception. So... I guess let's talk about the actual movie, because this, this movie has been on the horizon and about to come out for a very long time now. Oh man, it has been years. Like, a number of listeners have tweeted about when we started talking about this movie, and it was... Uh, very early in the podcast. So initially, the director Josh Boone and his best friend Kanate Lee, I'm probably mispronouncing that, I apologize, Kanate. But it's Nate spelled with a K, and I feel okay about pronouncing it Knate. I feel like if you spell Nate with a K, that's that seems like the maybe not the accurate pronunciation, but the best pronunciation. Wasn't there a baby polar bear named Canute at one point? But pronounced Newt. Oh. 
We always said Canood. Well, anyway, the point stands. Regardless, they made sort of a little mock-up comic from old Sinkavage New Mutants panels in the mid-2010s to figure out what a New Mutants movie could look like, and they took it to Simon Kinberg, one of the major forces behind a lot of the X-Men movies. So, originally, this involved Charles Xavier and a, a much more sort of traditional New Mutants structure. Obviously, that went out the window, but somewhere between... Then, and production, the first release date was set for April 13th, 2018. That feels so long ago. Possibly because that was so long ago. Yeah, that's a lifetime and a half ago. It was then moved to February 22nd, 2019, so it wouldn't conflict with Deadpool 2 or or Dark Phoenix. It was then moved again to August 2nd, 2019, to not conflict with Dark Phoenix's new release date. Allegedly, there were supposed to be extensive reshoots during this time to add characters and to make it more horror-y. We don't know if those actually happened or not. We don't, because it was around this time that it became very clear that Disney was buying a lot of Fox's properties, including Fox's movies. The next release date was because of that, in fact. That was April 3rd, 2020, and that was to better fit Disney's release calendar in general. Obviously, everything from April was canceled. That is the one that did not fall prey to to Disney or business machinations, but to Universal Pestilence. In August 28th, 2020, it finally came out in theaters. And apparently, despite the fact that the pandemic was and is still raging, that was in large part because the contracts around the movie actually required a theatrical release a certain amount of time before streaming releases would have been allowed. I still think that it was wildly irresponsible to have released it in theaters at all. You are not wrong. But on November 17th, 2020, it finally got a home and streaming release. It was out on, you know, Blu-ray. It was out on various streaming services. And that's how we watched it. The streaming part specifically. Well, and then someone gave us copies, which, Miles, I know you were planning to see it anyway, but was was de- definitely worked around my I'm not paying to watch this. <laughs> um, and we'll get to part of uh, why that was the case, because I know you had some very specific objections. I had, I had a number of reasons, but one of them was that I was just being diehard about the fact that because of conflict of interest at the time when it actually came out, this was the one X-Men movie I could get away with not reviewing. <laughs> I like reviewing X-Men movies. I do too, but it's nice having a break sometimes. <laughs> That's reasonable. Anyway, to go to after the movie came out, uh, there were originally going to be sequels. Um, they're almost certainly not going to happen now because of the Disney buyout, but it was intended to be a trilogy of different types of horror movies. The second movie was going to be an alien invasion type of horror movie set in Brazil with Warlock as a new character joining in and Karma as one of the villains who would then end up joining the team. And the third was just going to be straight up Inferno. Huh. Yeah, I have no idea how those would have gone, but they are intriguing. They're intriguing, but having seen the first one, I'm not really mourning their loss. So I guess this is the point where we should talk about the fact that we have very different views of this movie. I think we both agree that it's a flawed movie and not objectively amazing, but I really, really enjoyed it. And it sounds like while you enjoyed some elements, overall you didn't like it. I thought there were aspects of it that were very, very good, and aspects of it that were very, very bad. 
Someone on Twitter described it as the kind of movie that they didn't really regret seeing, but probably wouldn't recommend. And that's kind of where I'm sitting at this point. But one of the things that I keep coming back to as you're talking about the proposed sequels is that I felt like the horror elements were among the weakest parts of the movie. Like the stuff that they did well for me doesn't even touch that area. Yeah, I mean, I'm not that much of a horror buff. I've become certainly more of one uh, in my adult years, even though I was terrified of horror movies as a kid. And the horror is, it's tame. I think it is in places interesting, and we'll talk a little bit more about that, but I wouldn't really call it a good horror movie. For me, if I'm going to call it a good anything movie, I'd call it a good YA movie. The thing is, it's trying so hard to be a horror movie that it's hard to not judge it by that standard. Like... The it it was it wants to be a horror movie. It was written and directed to be and promoted as a horror movie, and the horror is just it's it's hackneyed. It feels like any of you know the dime a dozen generic horror movies that I don't really pay attention to that come out and later on I watch late at night on Netflix while I'm doing something else. <laughs> I, I'm definitely inclined to be more charitable, but I think it also hits my taste better. But as far as the movie itself, I mean, we have, we should talk about the plot. We should talk about the characters. I'm thinking it might make more sense to actually talk plot first so that there's a framework to talk about how the characters are and are not different from their comic counterparts. How's that sound? You know, I'd actually probably go the other way if nothing else, because that lets us start on a pretty high note, because something that I know we had in common in terms of, of our judgment of this is we were both really impressed with the performances. Yeah, all five young leads, and honestly, the villain as well, like, they did pretty damn well. It kind of reminded me in that regard of X-Men Apocalypse, where the characters are better than the movie they're in. Yeah, it definitely, definitely had a fair amount of that vibe and it had some of the same issues with pacing and balance too but let's let's go through the characters and maybe how they differ from the comics in very superficial ways and then go into the plot and go in more depth in the characters as we're discussing the plot would that work that sounds great let's do it all right well i feel like we have to start with mirage with danielle moonstar because she is without question the main character of the movie Danny Moonstar, I believe she's Cheyenne in this. I don't remember her ever actually saying that explicitly within this movie. She does once, yeah. Okay, um, and she is played by Blue Hunt, who's an actress of Lakota descent. There are some great interviews with her around. Um, I would look those up, who really who took the role seriously, went into it really, really well. She's cues a little bit younger in the movie than she does in the comic, both visually and performatively in the comic she's very much one of the leaders of the team in the movie she's the newcomer to to the location and and yeah and all the characters are somewhat out of their depth but she is is more so than most at least going into it and part of that is that she's the only member of these characters of these new mutants if you will who doesn't know what her powers are she just wakes up after a disaster that wipes out her reservation and wakes up in this hospital and has no idea what's going on. And I think that's a big part of why she's so different. Like, in the comics, Danny is defined by her relationship with her powers from the start. And with here, we don't really get that. Yeah. I I have mixed feelings about that choice because part of the problem here is that if you're at all familiar with the characters from the comics, every twist in this movie is obvious. That's very true, and that's part of why this is a spoilery review, because we can't talk about wide swaths of the movie without talking about 
the big twist. So I will say here, if you care about spoilers, we are about to spoil the biggest aspect of the movie. You can stream it and watch it at home if you want, and then you can come back to this review. Or if you don't care, then, well, let's just go. What are we about to spoil? I can think of like three different things that would fit here. Uh, Well, for me, we're about to spoil that a lot of the horror elements in the movie are Danny's powers going out of control without her realizing it and creating these like nightmare scenarios for the people around her. Because, of course, Danny's powers are that she can bring out somebody's greatest fear or later, alternately, their greatest desire and manifest it into reality on some level. I think I would be more impressed with the setup here if I hadn't seen the episode of X-Men Evolution that's built around pretty much the same setup. Maybe that's why I like the movie, because I hadn't seen that episode of X-Men Evolution. Yeah, it's it's a thing that... I, I, I'm not going to say it makes it a bad idea to do in the movie, but it, it's something that when, when you're rehashing plot that's been done well in other media or other formats, and that's true of both the Demon Bear and the specific take on Danny and the stuff that's happening around her, I feel like understanding that that media then sets the bar for what you're doing, but also that you need to differentiate from it is really important. And actually, you know, I think that's a lot of my issue with with this movie on a couple fronts structurally is that I, I just, I feel like it doesn't understand how to adapt something well. Like concept, concept or details. Okay. Yeah, I don't know. Because for me, it's like such, it's so different than the source material that I kind of feel like it goes its own way. Mm, except where it's not. Again, if you've read the comics, if you're even passingly familiar with this set of characters, you're going to see every twist coming a mile away. Nothing that happens is going to surprise you or shock you. So going on with the characters and interesting changes and changes that I think were actually really good. um, Two of the characters who are most significantly changed in this, less in terms of background than in terms of teen dynamics, are Rain and Sam. Uh, Rain is played by Maisie Williams, who you know from Game of Thrones and a whole bunch of other stuff. Sam is played by Charlie Heaton, whom you probably know from Stranger Things if you know him from somewhere. Um, I'm, I'm going to say right now, his his attempt at a Kentucky accent is um, inexcusable. It's 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 very bad. I think it would make Chris Claremont proud. I think it would make Chris Claremont cry. <laughs> Anyway, their roles are kind of swapped. Rain is more of a leader. She's she's much more more confident. She's much much more social. She's much more an elder sibling character to Danny as she's just coming in. Not not really elder sibling, but she's she's the one who kind of takes Danny under her wing. Um, and Sam is much more insecure and much more specifically consumed by guilt. Exactly. Yeah. And. Honestly, I thought both of those changes worked. Like, Rain especially. I was so impressed with what Maisie Williams did with that character. And it's, on the one hand, in all the ways you described, she's very different from the insecure, uh, you know, held down by her religious guilt and intolerance character we saw in early New Mutants. But she's still recognizably Rain. She still feels like that character to me. She feels like a version of that character who grew up 10 or 15 years later and had access to some things that the original didn't. And I think in terms of the role shift, that is, that's, so that's what I'm talking about when I talk about adaptation done right, is looking at the original, looking at, you know, dynamics, characterization, really thinking about how that's going to play on a screen and figuring out how to shift it to land things with the intended impact of the original. 
Agreed. Yeah, I, I think that worked super, super well. It was interesting that they changed Rain from being Scots Presbyterian to being the religion that everybody always remembers her as being, which is Catholic. What's extra weird is she definitely refers to Reverend Craig as Reverend Craig. Oh, a reverend's not a thing in Catholicism? I'm not familiar. I don't think so. I could be wrong. I don't know, but he's definitely wearing like a super, super Catholic outfit with all the Catholic, you know, raiment stuff. Well, and she does she does things like confession, which is, I'm not going to spoil that scene, but it's pretty great. So, speaking of Sam, one of the most significant changes to Sam is an element of his backstory that didn't previously exist. Now, in the comics, Sam's power manifested when he was trapped underground in a coal mine. That's the same case here. In that case, there had been a cave-in, miners were trapped, and he was able to free them. In this case, his uh, cannonball powers cannonballed right through a bunch of them, including his dad. So he is consumed by guilt here. And one of the touches that I think works so, so well is that he just keeps trying to control his powers more and more and more, and he keeps injuring himself. Like, if you've seen a picture of Sam from the movie, he's got a black eye and an arm in a cast, and that's why. And that makes sense. Like, a Sam Guthrie who had caused that level of damage, especially to family, of course he would be trying to either control his powers enough that it never happened again, or keep training until he hurt himself so much that he died. So, you can't really talk about Sam without talking about Roberto. And in this movie, you can't really talk about Roberto without talking about casting. Right. So when we said that all of the actors playing the teenagers put in spectacular performances, we meant it. They were great. Um, and that includes Henry Zaga, who should absolutely not have been cast as Roberto da Costa. Um, Zaga is Brazilian and he is white. And Roberto da Costa is Brazilian and he is black. And that is explicitly and, re explicit and really important to his character. And also, whitewashing in cinema is emblematic of a lot of structural racism and ongoing problems. This is something that there's been public discussion about for decades and had been when this movie was created and cast. And there's really no excuse for this. And especially, especially not the excuse that the director gave, which was fucking gross. Yeah, Josh Boone mentioned, and we're, we're paraphrasing here, but he mentioned that he wanted Roberto to seem like a child of privilege, to seem wealthy, to seem successful. The implication being that that meant he would have to be lighter skinned, which, wow. Yeah, that's some bullshit. And one of the things that Zaga's terrific performance makes very, very clear is how much of that characterization is performance, how much another actor with those chops could have pulled that off. I mean, Zaga looks the part, if you're talking about the part from the era in which Roberto was colored lighter and lighter and lighter and lighter by Marvel, like he looks like he was pulled out of a comic from that era. But again, it's really hard to separate his performance from the casting issues here. And the judgment that Boone showed in that in both making that choice and in his absolutely ghastly reason for it is, I think, something that comes to flavor a number of other aspects of the movie as well. So we're going to come back to that a few times. Um, that also, I kind of want to jump to, to Celia Reyes here because, again, this is a character who was whitewashed from the comics pretty much completely. And the fact, again, that it, that it happened once 
was a bad choice, that it happened twice, is just just beyond unacceptable and, and again, speaks to either disregard or deliberate choice at that point. Yeah, I mean, Cecilia Reyes, or Dr. Reyes as she's mostly called in the movie, the character is Puerto Rican in the comics, but she's specifically dark-skinned Puerto Rican, and yeah, it's kind of the exact same thing that happened with Sunspot. Yeah, and I dislike that a lot. And I, I think I, I think Alice Braga plays her okay. She, it, It's a very campy horror movie character. And I think that's fine because it's kind of a campy horror movie. Yeah, I mean, I think the decision to whitewash both of the black characters they used and make one of them a villain was kind of duly dubious. Yeah, because that's the thing. Dr. Reyes is absolutely a villain in this. I mean, she's somewhat sympathetic. She's not like, you know, cackling, mustache, twirlingly evil. She's just following horrible, horrible orders for the most part. But in the comic, that's not her at all. I would say, like, of the characters, she is by far the most changed personality-wise. Her powers are identical, almost, but her personality is nothing like that of the Dr. Reyes in the comic. Yeah, she's basically an entirely different character with the same powers and name as the character with that name. And also, you know, vaguely medically related. So I'm going to circle back to the kids and go to Liana Rasputin, who's played by Anna Taylor-Joy, whom you might be familiar with from um, recently, and to great acclaim, I haven't actually seen it yet, but The Queen's Gambit on Netflix, and um, to at least extensive acclaim for her performance, uh, the movie whose title I will never pronounce is anything but The Vavitch. <laughs> That's how I pronounce it, too. Yeah, it's, it's, um, you know, it's another movie that I think features great performances and some generally overall iffy choices but <laughs> but anyway um so Ilyana is in some ways maybe the one of the kids who is altered most in terms of powers and background from her original version most of those changes landed for me um she is her, her powers are similar her powers are almost identical limbo exists and is explained very differently and there are some other aspects to her and to her powers that are just left vague, which I actually really dug. The surreal, over-the-top, out-of-our-depth elements of the story that surrounded magic and the matter-of-factness with which she interacted with them and the extent to which the audience saw them but basically was just still baffled by them in in the same ways that the other characters were worked very well for me as did the alterations to her background i agree yeah and let's definitely go into the background thing in a sec but i appreciate that as the plot reveals itself you're like oh okay all of the characters are seeing these visions related to their past traumas due to danny's powers manifesting in an out-of-control way and then there's whatever the hell Ilyana's doing like, yeah, Ilyana, Ilyana seems to have grown up in, again, a fairly hackneyed B-grade horror movie. But, which, which to be fair, she kind of did in the comics too, but a different one? Well, let's just talk about that, because, okay, so in the comics, Ilyana, as a little girl, was taken into a demon dimension. She grew up in a very traumatic fashion there that was kind of a, a metaphor for grooming and abuse, and then she came out as a damaged but intact teenager back in the real world. Now, it is possible that that also happened in the movie, but if so... The concept of where she was and what she went through is very, very different. So for me, my interpretation of her backstory, because she does allude to it, she's probably the, the, the most closed off of the characters in terms of wanting to talk about her past. I got the impression that she was 
serially abused in some kind of a human trafficking situation by people who, as she said, when they hurt her would smile. That's why the demons in her vision showed up as having smiley face masks. Mm, but people had smiley face masks in her visions and her memories, too, and the demons just looked like that. Yeah, so I, I don't know. It's very unclear. Like, clearly there was some kind of child abuse going on, and it was messed up. And I actually really appreciate that the movie wasn't explicit about it. I thought that was a, a positive decision. Yeah, she was. there was child abuse and trafficking that may or may not have involved actual demons, and we don't know. And not knowing works in this context. It really does, leaving it ambiguous. And I like also the fact that we don't know whether her powers do indeed tap into some kind of a demon dimension, or if this was just a way she mentally retreated, which I think is implied, and she then, through her whatever-the-hell-they-are mutant powers, kind of made manifest in a more real way. Like, when she brings Limbo into the world in the big fight at the end, her Lockheed hand puppet turns into an actual dragon that she's hanging out with. Is that because she channeled Lockheed into existence? Or did Lockheed really exist already? Like, we don't really know. Or is her perception that far off and part of her powers involves pulling other people into it? I don't know, but it's cool. And I gotta say, the visuals of her powers are always freaking awesome. Okay, not every time, but in the last big fight, when her, her armor came on, that was straight up Warlock, right? That, was that, that looked like the T.O. virus. Well, see, that's the thing. So I just reread the Demon Bear Saga right before we recorded, and that's the first time her soul armor ever shows up, and it actually looks very techno-organic the way Sienkiewicz draws it, even though at that point it's not intended to be. So I don't think that was a deliberate Warlock reference so much as a reference to that early Sienkiewicz art, but I don't know. Again, I feel like if you're adapting that material, you gotta know what you're referencing. Yeah, well, I mean, I'm sure Josh Boone did. I just don't know what that was. But it looks so cool. Like, and Eliana in general. So she's a much meaner character in this. I, to, to me, I think I chalk that at least in part up to Kitty Pride not being in her continuity in, in this movie. She's pretty mean in the comics, too. I think this is one of those characters where having them played by an actual person who's performing the role and saying these things to other life people really, really emphasizes that. Yeah, because, I mean, she is, she's actively horrible. Like, I felt bad for the other characters she was messing with, and I guess we had to talk about that scene, huh? Yeah, so one of the things that Boone and Lee decided to do was drive home what a jerk Ileana is and how prickly she is by having her be super fucking racist. And this is, there are, there are cuts of this going around online. You can find a lot of conversations about it if you Google it. I'm not going to link to them, because, honestly, I don't really want anyone to need to see that or to have to choose whether or not to click on it. Um, suffice to say, she is gratuitously racist to Danny. And when I say gratuitously, it's, it's completely pointless. It does nothing to establish or advance anything important about the character or the story. It's clearly there to emphasize that she's a big old jerk, which honestly comes across just fine without it. And all it does is make me like her a lot less and be a lot less interested in her being part of the camaraderie as it progresses. I have to agree with all of that, yeah. I mean, I think you could have changed about six words in that scene, and the scene and movie would have been significantly better. This is another point, too, where those specific choices speak, I think, in combination with some other stuff in the movie, some of which we touched on in the cold open, to 
the the creator's perspective because this is a movie that in general has roughly the same lack of cultural literacy as X-Men Origins Wolverine. Yeah, I mean, like we talked about in the cold open, the description of that myth, the two bears in this case, uh, that opens and closes the movie. Yeah, freaking Billy Graham invented that? And from that link you sent me, I guess he initially attributed it to the Inuit, and then they, mm-hmm. some of the representatives got mad, and so then he just threw it at the Cherokee. Yeah, there was bad press around him him falsely attributing it, claiming that it was an Inuit legend, and so he, he just chose a different tribe. Um, and it's super gross. By the way, I found that out via about 30 seconds on Google because I remembered that that was that it was it was apocryphal and you know misattributed but I couldn't remember where it came from. I literally just searched two wolves the one you feed misattributed or original source. And I got sources for this dating back well before this movie was being pitched. So again, there's really 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 no excuse. And this is, this is like, this is, this is, to me at least, this is worse than the Kayla Silver Fox shit, which is also massively problematic, but just because of the original context of this story, that it's something that was invented by this white Christian preacher who had a massive amount of, he was like the, the definition of fucking institutional power, in, especially in, in, in a white supremacist, Christian supremacist state, and who originally, who, who, you know, just attached it to different groups to attempt to give it narrative weight, and, you know, jumped over to another one when the first, first group protested. It's so, it's such a gross history, and seeing, having, having white screenwriters then pull it in in a similar context here, when in 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 the in an era where again they could have googled it that easily is really inexcusable it's not great yeah you know at the same time though i do have to give this movie a lot of credit for having a native american protagonist you don't see that a lot and you really don't see that in superhero movies but the main context in which the fact that she was native american played into the story was someone yelling racial slurs at her her actual frame of reference heritage and culture were almost absent from the bulk of the movie and the characterization. And yes, it's important that they did that, but you know, the the having putting the character there and casting a Native American actress feels like the barest of minimums. Like they they need it's it's great that they did it, and it's a really massive problem that they did it as badly as they did. I think part of that may be that as the audience surrogate, since Danny is the main character, she's not as well-defined as she might be. And so much of Danny in the comic, and especially in the Demon Bear saga, is her as this incredibly headstrong, independent, willful, stubborn character whose heritage is a great big part of her identity, right down to the fact that she adds her own Cheyenne uh, items to her New Mutants uniform at the very beginning. Yeah, that is something that is fundamental to the character from the comic. And I would, even if it's not literal in the senses that it was with other characters, I mean, I think I think it's the same kind of whitewashing. And it's a kind of whitewashing that's especially insidious because it parallels specifically the kind of legal and structural and violent enforcement of racism that 
that that the United States has consistently and systematically inflicted on Native Americans, like specifically the stripping away of culture and erasure of culture. Like it's it's hard to see the character portrayed the way she is as compared to the comic and not think about things like, you know, the systematic efforts to eradicate native languages. Oh, I hadn't thought about it that way. Like for me, it's it's you know, it's it's a problem in general, vague, large cultural literacy ways. But it's also a really, really big issue here just because of the ways that it very directly in, in it, it becomes a microcosm for specific cultural violence enacted on native peoples. Okay. Like it's 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 something that that for me I I can't separate it from that, and I don't know that it's a thing that should be separate separated from that or treated as separate, because that history and dynamic, along with you know, the ways that it relates to native representation in Hollywood, is part of the history that this movie is built on and it's part of the history and dynamic that goes into white writers and directors defining and determining the portrayal of native characters okay so i guess you would say then that claire montenson kevich did it significantly better despite also being white writers and artists i think there are yeah as we've discussed and and i'm going to link to to james least's piece on this that we we published a while ago there's been a lot of writing on this i mean i i think the comics are problematic in other massive ways. But one thing that they are consistent about and that is important in them is Danielle Moonstar's relationship to her culture and her ancestry. I feel like this would be a really good point to plug a comic that actually just came out that Marvel put out, uh, which is called Marvel Voices Indigenous Voices or Marvel Indigenous mm -hmm. Voices. I'm not sure the official title, but it's an anthology of short stories, um, about Marvel characters done by indigenous creators. And there's some really good stuff in there, including some Mirage stuff. And a good next step would be hiring more of those indigenous creators to be writing main ongoing Marvel comics rather than just having an identity folk, a, a creative identity focused anthology. So Marvel, I really hope that that's your next step because if not, uh, we're watching. <laughs> yes, Marvel, be good, do good things. So I feel like this is a good point to talk about the interactions between the characters, because I think one thing this movie does overall pretty well, obviously it's got a pretty, a pretty abbreviated runtime compared to dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of issues of comics, is focus on those one-on-one -on -one relationships in a similar fashion to how early New Mutants comics did. And I kind of want to start again with the strongest point. One of the re one of the most important relationships in this movie is likewise a very very important relationship in the comics, and that is between Rain and Danny. And I'm gonna spoil things massively and say there are a couple in this. Um, they they end up fall they fall for each other, and it's very low key, and it very much just sort of happens alongside the rest of the plot, and there are no big conversations about it, and um, it's it's great. 
it's fucking great. Like, I think one of the things the director is best at is teens just teening around. And the teen romance in this is actually really good. Like, I was so invested in Danny and Rain's relationship, and it felt so natural based on their interaction from the moment Danny first shows up at the institution that they're in. Like, I was rooting for them so hard, and I'm so pleased that, like, it's fine. Their relationship totally works out, and it's just nice. Yeah, it feels extremely real. It feels extremely organic. Both both of the the actors play it beautifully, um, and it is definitely the gayest stuff that has happened on screen in an X movie, which I appreciate. And I again, I ugh, there are so many things that are almost there, and so many moments that make me wish that I could recommend the whole more. <laughs> and this is definitely a big one of them. It's really great, and it's also not without precedent. I mean. Danny and Rain's relationship in the comics, there was a lot of subtext there from very early on. And you can read it as platonic, but I think you could also very easily read it as being romantic. Yeah, um, and a lot of fans do, a lot of readers do. And I think it was I think it was a great move, just as I think that it was a really good move to switch Rain and Sam's relationships to the rest of the characters in the ways that they did, partly because of this, because I feel like if you had kept Rain's original characterization this would have been a much more fraught relationship in in ways that would have really changed the story and really changed the story in kind of negative ways within at least the rest of the confines of this movie. But also because this gives us a Rain who's older, but who's also more self-aware and self-assured and a little more defiant who has has this this reign reminds me a whole 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 lot of a lot of former catholics i know who've been through an absolute ringer in terms of their experiences in catholicism and leaving catholicism and have sort of reached a point where they're kind of building something else for themselves rather than just getting the hell away from something yeah, Rain clearly has a lot of trauma from her abusive religious upbringing, but that doesn't define her in the same way that it defines Rain Sinclair in the comics for so many years. Right. Um, which is nice. It's nice to see an alternate take on that. Because I'm not, you know, I, I don't think I'm not you know, denying what Rain's experienced and the trauma she's experienced and the way it shapes her. But again, seeing that go in a different direction and seeing that go in a direction that I think is more plausible now than it might necessarily have been when Rain was created, just based on the resources and information that exist and that are widely available to kids her age, was cool. Like, I really liked that. I liked that the queerness in this was entirely unconnected to trauma and horror. Yeah, like, there's a brief acknowledgement of the fact that um, Danny knows that it might be weird for Rain to be kissing a girl, and Rain's like, well, I've never kissed anyone. And it's just like, I feel like no, it's, it's, not even, it's not it. even that. Rain's like, just so you know, I've never done this before. And Danny's like, he kissed a girl. And Rain's like, no, kissed anyone. <laughs> so it's not even that Danny brings up the it's weird because it's a girl. It's just like that moment of, of interpretation. And it's lovely. Like, yeah, that's 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 a thing that I think is done super right. Again, like there is and, and also there there is no two girls kissing triggers horror stuff at all. In fact, if anything, their relationship is and the positivity of it and their connection is 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 a big factor in in you know in the resolution of the horror stuff. Exactly. Yeah, it's purely positive. We've come so yeah. far, at least in that specific way. <laughs> 
But again, not everything intersects, nothing exists in a vacuum. So talking about character interactions, the other, the other, what I think of as the other like central couple, regardless the shape of their relationship, central couple of new mutants, is of course Sam and Roberto. Absolutely, yeah. They are one of my favorite bromances in all of, honestly, in all of fiction. And we don't see a ton of that here, I think in part because the plot doesn't focus a ton on Sam and barely focuses on Roberto. But there's this one scene where they're hanging out, I think in like a rec room or something, right before one of the many times everything goes to hell. And I wish I remembered the dialogue. I wish I'd written it down. But it's just perfect Sam and Roberto just being increasingly close friends from very different backgrounds with a friendship that is based in part on how different they are and how much they think that's cool. Yeah, yeah. And you only get a glimpse of it, but you do definitely get a glimpse of of two dudes, one of whom would definitely move to space for the other and the other of whom wouldn't think that was weird. I, I like that you called it a bromance because while normally I really don't like that term and sort of the general growing, like whether or not their relationship is a romantic and sexual relationship bromance is an extremely accurate descriptor of it. I don't throw that word around lightly, Jay. <laughs> yeah, no, um, they're, they're good. And again, again, there are problems with, with both actors that um, to some extent influence the read of the scenes, but that's, yeah, that's, that's, that's solid. So the other, other relationships, we, we talked a little bit about Danny and Ileana um, and that's that's a relationship that shifts a bit over the course of the movie, but is is so is defined so early on and is so shaped specifically by Liana and Liana's characterization that it's it's hard not to not to go back there. Um, Roberto and Liana in this have a really interesting dynamic. Now, Roberto and Danny in the comics flirt continually and tease each other continually and have a really have actually a relationship I would also describe as fairly bromantic but um, in in this that's somewhat that that dynamic shifts somewhat to Roberto, Roberto and Eliana it does yeah and there's a is I think explicitly a more sexual type of flirtation in a way that again this movie handles surprisingly tastefully and I think it really works because both of these characters have a lot of bluster to them. They come off as more kind of intensely confident than they actually are. In Ileana's case, because of her abusive background and the way she feels that she needs to defend herself from the world. In Roberto's case, because in this movie, he accidentally killed his girlfriend when his powers manifested. They do the same thing a lot of the movies have done where they turn his powers into being more heat-based rather than just glowing black and being strong. This does lead to a kind of great moment when he says that he can't get very far with girls because he gets too hot and no one knows what he's talking about, but they all think it's very funny. <laughs> yeah. And so, I don't know. I, I like that we have this very pure romance that we're rooting for in Danny and Rain, and then this goddamn train wreck between Roberto and Ileana that you know is going to end badly, and in fact does end badly in the movie. Extremely badly. Uh, but it's it's not really a romance. It's a it's It's two characters who are attracted to each other and both bringing in boatloads of issues hooking up in a place that's gradually being taken over by their literal nightmares so you know it's 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 but it's again it's not one of those sex turns into death things either which is kind of nice like it's very 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 nicely compartmentalized from that 
again, I feel like there's so much to like about this, the way this movie does so many things. It's just that the unfortunate parts are uh, not ones you can ignore. And, you know, talking about Roberto and Deliana and their horrible, wonderful, horrible interaction makes me think of something that I think is a centerpiece of this entire movie, which is trauma and how it defines characters and how they react to it. Because in this movie, we take characters who in the comics have certainly all been traumatized by their powers to some extent and amp that way the hell up. In this movie, literally all of our main characters have killed people deliberately or accidentally with their powers. In Cannonball's case, that manifests as extreme guilt. Roberto just refuses to interact with it or talk about it. Ilyana does something with her powers. Ilyana proudly acknowledges it. Like, she got pulled in there because she killed 18 men systematically with her soul sword. Right. And one of the things I like about it is we have these characters who, at the beginning, don't really get along very well and in some cases are just straight up horrible to each other. And it's as they help each other through literalized supernatural manifestations of each of their individual traumas that they both bond and start to get through that stuff. And I think that's I think that's important, and I like that the movie focuses on that. I like that because Danny's powers turn these traumas into actual physical creepy threats, the characters can just straight up save each other and ally with each other and have each other's backs and that's the character's journey as a group and as individuals i thought that was fucking great one of the cool features of that one of the things that i thought was an interesting direction to take it and also a fairly effective one was how much more persistent and powerful iliana's demons were than anyone else's with the exception of the demon bear itself Yeah, yeah, because in her recollection of her past, there were these creepy, tall, thin men wearing smiley face masks kind of stalking her and doing some kind of abuse to her. They end up all over the school, hospital, whatever it is, and they end up attacking other characters even when she's not there. And while it's never stated outright, and there's no other real indicator of it, the weirdness around her and the way that plays out to me implies... That in her case, it's not exactly just a replica. Like, they're not limited in the ways that other people's nightmares are. And it kind of feels like instead of projecting a facsimile, it opened a door. Right. And that makes sense given the ambiguous way her powers are presented. Clearly, the Soul Sword and Lockheed and the Soul Armor and Limbo are to some extent real, whether Ileana tapped into them and they already existed or whether she created them. And so having these demonic manifestations of her trauma be like actual things, I think totally works. Also, those things were creepy. I know you said this movie wasn't very effective as horror, but those things freaked me out. I thought the decision to literally show clips from the Hush episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer was kind of hilarious, though. Okay, that's true. Yeah, that was one of those things where they're just like, oh, yeah, we'll acknowledge our influences. In fact, we'll have our influences playing in the background of at least two scenes. Well, we'll have our kids engaging with a specific era of pop culture, too. Mm hmm. Yeah, it was it was very early 2000s in a lot of ways. Yeah, if anything, I, the costumes the costumes didn't all feel rooted there. It felt very. Time agnostic. Within a certain frame. I know that the initial intent of the movie was to have it take place in the 80s around the same time as X-Men Apocalypse. Mm, I don't know that I quite buy that. Yeah, I don't know. But 
For me, I think that bonding through trauma and through helping one another through trauma is one of the most new mutants aspects of the movie. Because yeah. so much of those characters in the comics are exactly that, even if their pasts are a little bit less fucked up in the comics. Absolutely. So I feel like we've been through this. We have to talk about the actual demon bear. We do. And yeah, this was <gasps> oh, very God. different for me and you. This is this is the thing that we have perhaps the most polarized opinions on. Miles, I think you should give yours first so that, that our listeners can hear it untainted by 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 mine because i i feel like i'm gonna ruin everything for everyone okay so i will first say that the demon bear symbolically was weak i feel like the demon bear should have meant more than it meant in the movie in the comic i mean it turns out it's a manifestation of the adversary and danny's parents are stuck inside it and it's a whole thing yeah that was i would definitely not have gone with the comic background for the demon bear but hinging it entirely on that weak-ass made-up story was a bad decision. Yeah, the whole you have two bears inside you and sometimes one of them, if your powers are weird, turns into a big demon and, and eats the villain. Right, okay, so the demon bear, it's shown as this kind of big, gaseous, vague, shadowy thing with like a realistic bear's face that has big, chompy bear teeth and it eats Dr. Reyes at the end, which is probably a good thing because she gets super evil by the end. And visually, I think it's... I think it's fine. I think I'm okay with it. I wish there was more to it. Like, I wish it represented Danny's guilt, maybe, or represented anything other than just her negative emotions coming out and doing bad things. But I will say the presentation, I think, was fine, and I'm probably biased in that uh, opinion by the fact that Ilyana's fight with the demon bear is rad as shit. Every time she hits it with the soul sword, the background flashes to being like this limbo hellscape for a second, and Lockheed's shooting fire at it, and it's just really, really cool. And that's probably a lot of why I like it. I, on the other hand, thought the demon bear was hilarious. I, okay. <laughs> I know it gets drawn with actual bear features, in the comics, but I feel fairly strongly that showing the demon bear in detail as a realistic bear, including even, even a gigantic realistic bear, is an extremely bad move. In the comics, it works because it's in this massively surreal environment, and it's drawn by Bill Sienkiewicz, and so it's still wildly stylist, and also it's a drawing, so it, it's, it's removed by that degree. I think this is something that works similar to magic being mean, like the fact the, w- the ways that it reads when everything's drawn are different from the ways that it reads when most of it's live action or very detailed CGI. And every, every moment when you can see actual bare features was so funny to me. Like, it just, it was ludicrous. It did not work. It took this enormous protean idea of a thing and it's just a fucking giant bear. And it throws things. It, it, it rips up church pews and just throws them at people. Um, so there's, there's that. There's, there's no real sense of the creeping corruption in the ways that there is in the comic. The co- in fact, in general, actually, the comic is horror, but it's very specifically surreal horror. It's weird. It's extremely weird. And the horror in the movie isn't. It's very generic. A lot of it is cribbed straight from Silent Hill. Um, And I just, and the demon bear feels like, again, just the horror monster that gets built up and built up and built up and then just 
cannot live up to the reputation that's been built for it. I think it could have. I think it could have if they if they if they kept it more more surreal and less realized. But just just the the giant giant lovingly rendered bear does not work for me as the climactic monster. Well, you can't go too far with that because if you do, you get Galactus being a big cloud. No, but there are directions you can take it. And in general, yeah, that's that's the tonal issue with the horror in here, is that it's got none of that weirdness. The horror all feels very hackneyed. It feels very, very, very done and cliched. And there's no excuse for that in a lot of ways. First of all, I do not understand how you could have this script and this setup and these characters and decide that the the property you're going to go to to crib from is Silent Hill when But I'm a Cheerleader is sitting right over there. <laughs> that would have been a very different and kind of amazing adaptation. Well, here's the thing, because that that sounds like it would be not horror, but that that's not true, because there's also a property in a series within the X franchise, within the Fox X franchise, that does institutional weird, surrealist, hyper-stylized horror in ways that I think would adapt the Sienkiewicz run of New Mutants really well. It would not look like it, but it would hit those tonal moments and actually would just adapting another Sienkiewicz story, and that's Legion. You know, you know you're not wrong. If you're going to yeah. go for uh, people stuck in an asylum, you could do a lot worse than Clockworks from Legion. Which, again, has a lot more in common with But I'm a Cheerleader than Silent Hill. It's true. Although it's funny you bring up Silent Hill because, okay, I've mentioned on the show before, I'm an enormous Silent Hill fan. Oh, and same. honestly, yeah. But honestly, the idea of let's take these characters' traumas and make them literal monstery stuff and have them have to deal with it. I, I just love that stuff. Like, the role-playing games I run, that's half of the plot that I always do. I'm fine with that, but I want it to have been done better. I want it to have been done more originally. That's that's reasonable. So before we move on to do a couple of listener questions, I feel like we should talk about what's behind the entire plot of the movie, that being that the entire institute that these kids are stuck in, what Dr. Reyes is serving the agenda of is the Essex Corporation, which is to say all of this is from Mr. Sinister. And if you are not familiar with Mr. Sinister and you don't know that he's Nathaniel Essex, that will mean that reveal, that big portentous reveal, will mean jack shit. But I don't think it needs to. I mean, I think just the idea that there's this horrible, horrible company that's specifically training young mutants the way they were being trained in Logan, because there's actual footage from Logan of that in the new mutants, that's enough. And even if you haven't seen Logan, like, I still think it's reasonable, because the kids at one point talk about how, oh, you know, I think they're going to train us up and help us out so we can be X-Men. They specifically say that. And so the idea that, oh, it's not that, it's something way worse, I thought was kind of cool. Eh. Fair. I feel like that actually sums up our uh, our relationships with this movie, is me saying, I thought that was kind of cool, and you saying, meh. I, I, there, are, there are definitely parts about which I have much stronger, both positive and negative feelings, than meh. But let's go on to the questions here. Okay, Will Camillo asks on Twitter, With the absence of textually queer karma, and the lack of acknowledgement of Liana's queer subtext, how do you feel about the Rain-Danny romance? What do you feel worked, and what could have been done better? Fucking loved it. Yeah, I'm on the same page. I thought it was great. Like, I'm okay with not having Karma in the movie. I think she's a great character. I think it's awesome that she was one of the first lesbian characters in Marvel Comics. 
but she wasn't in the Demon Bear saga. And to be honest, she's probably one of the less interesting New Mutants characters in a general sense. Yeah, I think her powers would also have made the writing a lot more complicated. I don't think that's necessarily a good reason to cut her, but as as Miles said, she wasn't in the original story, and if you're if you're casting based on that, there's that. As far as Ilyana, I mean, we both talked about how it was nice that the central romance between women was just such a positive, warm, happy thing. And you can't have warm, happy things with Ilyana. Yeah. Not that you should avoid, you know, negative examples of queer relationships, but I like that it was a nice one. Ileana's relationship to sexuality in general in this is clearly pretty messy. And I think I think largely the the character who she comes on to is an opportunistic context. Like I the ways the 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 sexual situations in that she's in in this in general don't to me seem like they're there they they reflect anything useful about her actual sexual orientation i would agree yeah um that said i mean i think everything should be queerer always so that <laughs> brian caffrey asks on twitter with the numerous next generations of mutants, is choosing a pick and mix of characters rather than a single monolithic generation a more effective approach? What would your thoughts be on how to choose a remixed set of characters? I really like that they stuck with some of the core New Mutants characters, to be honest. Those are characters who I think work in part because they each fill a certain role in the group socially and also power-wise. You know, I mean, even if some of those relationships were changed in the movie, I think it works. I think similarly, if you stuck with Generation X, I mean, maybe not like in the TV movie, because yikes, but those are characters who are designed to fit together. The new X-Men Academy X kids, kind of the same deal, at least before half of them died. So I'm not saying you couldn't remix uh, those characters and take some examples of each. I think the current run of New Mutants that Marvel's doing does that quite effectively. But I kind of like keeping them in their own groups that we know work. Yeah, in terms of this group, especially the original New Mutants, they've got such good dynamics. They've got such complex and well-written relationships. They're such well-developed characters. And in some ways, they're such a balanced cast that it's hard to find you know ways to, to switch around and improve that aren't just tweaking individual characters and dynamics and slight shifts within those. Here's a good one. Sigrid Ellis asks on Twitter, if you could fix one thing in this movie, what would your first priority be? I'm going to cheat because this is a one thing that would address a lot of things. Say racism. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if we could uh, fix some of the whitewashing in the casting, change that dialogue from that scene with Ilyana and Danny, that would that would just straight up make it a better movie. Well, and change a massive amount of how Danny is written and portrayed. Yes, absolutely that. And again, Blue Hunt did a great job with yeah. what she was given. Like, a genuinely great job. So did Henry Zaga. But, yeah. I mean, Blue Hunt did a fantastic job with what she had to work with, which is part of what's frustrating about this. Everything that's bad about this movie is doubly frustrating because it's so clear that it could have been so much better. And, like, I would have loved to have seen her with more to work with. Because she's obvious she's a terrific actor. She's got a great grasp of the character. She's clearly a really neat person. Like, I've, I've read interviews with her. She seems great. And, like, this is, this is not, <laughs> this movie is not fair to the people in it. <laughs> yeah, that, you're not wrong. Okay, well, you already addressed a lot of my major concerns, so I'll choose a different one. And I'll say, I would like more 
symbolism. I feel like that was something the movie didn't go far enough with. I feel like if the demon bear had meant something, then that actually would have helped in terms of Danny being a more defined character with a more defined heritage. But I feel like all the characters' traumas, if those had more directly informed not only their personalities, but their goals and their relationships with the other characters, I think that would have been very positive. That might be asking too much for a standard feature-length film, and for that matter, a feature-length film that wasn't even all that long, but I think even a few lines here or there would have really helped, especially with the demon bear. Yeah, I mean, if I could choose a second thing, I would, I would, I would dial up the weird by about 90%. That's legit, yeah. Finally, Kenny McCormick asks on Twitter, I love the new mutants. Should I watch the film? Maybe that's the biggest question right there. Oh man, that's a hard one. It Because it's not just about whether you love the New Mutants that I would say determines whether you should watch the film. I think if you love the New Mutants, you should think hard about whether you should watch the film. You shouldn't just let it pass by without considering it. For me, I guess what it comes down to is I think something that's fundamental to how I personally interact with media. For me, you can have a story of whatever sort that is a goddamn mess in 12 different directions and that has certain aspects that are just not okay. But if there are a couple aspects that are really good, chances are I'll probably enjoy it overall. And so I think if your relationship with media is similar, then you should absolutely watch this movie and you'll have a lot to gain from it and probably a lot of things to be pissed off about. But I think the positives, for me at least, outweighed the negatives in the sense of the movie, if not in the sense of how the movie represents a bunch of shitty stuff about society in certain parts. So that's my very long-winded answer, and I know yours, Jay, is going to be a very different one. I'm really excited to hear it. Yeah. Um, I think that if you are a white American of primarily European descent, the decision to support this movie commercially is one with ethical context and connotations. And where you want to go with that is up to you, but that's something I feel pretty strongly about. This is not a movie I would recommend to people because it is a movie that I do not feel okay about propelling commercial support toward. So there's that. In terms of, in, in an ethical vacuum, <laughs> um, in an ethical vacuum, the answer is is heavily your mileage may vary. If you are someone who enjoys adaptations for the sake of the differences, who likes looking at what didn't work as much as what did work, this movie's got a lot of both its fertile ground. It has a very good queer romance. It has very, very good performances by a lot of very, very good performers. But... I just, I, yeah, I can't separate it from that other stuff. And so that ultimately is going to be what informs my recommendation, or in this case, lack of recommendation. And so that's that. That is the final Fox X-Men Universe movie. This was supposed to be the beginning of a trilogy that will almost certainly never continue. And so we're just left with the movie that we got with all the good and bad that that entails. Which is a lot. And with that... Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in New Fairfield, Connecticut, in exile from Forest Hills, New York, and Portland, Oregon, and produced by Matt Hunter, who also arranged our theme music. You can find more of Matt's work at moon-talk.bandcamp.com. 
New episodes of our show come out most Sundays on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for visual companions to every episode. Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. Next week, we will actually, as promised for this week, be back on the road to Onslaught. In the pages of X-Men, both uncanny and adjectiveless. They're basically the same book at this point anyway. Pretty much. Pretty much.